he he was a brilliant person. He was somebody who was really captivating, uh, who was real good at telling you what you wanted to hear. Which is exactly what he did to our clients. You know, you can come forward and you can tell someone and someone's going to believe you. And, and by the way, when he was arrested, I told him, like, you got to watch this guy. He'll kill himself because he wants to control everything. No matter how long it's passed, the statute of limitations issues, and whatever you think is like standing in your way as an obstacle, you still can get justice. Welcome to Parallel Justice. I'm Renee Williams, the executive director of the National Center for Victims of Crime, and your host for this series. Sometimes the criminal justice system fails to obtain justice for victims. This can occur when prosecutions end in acquittal or if charges are not filed at all. Even following a conviction, victims of crime can be left with devastating damages. So what then is civil justice? Well, crime victims can file civil lawsuits against offenders and other responsible parties, regardless of the outcome of the criminal prosecution, or even if there was no prosecution at all. Though money awarded in civil lawsuits can never fully compensate a victim for the trauma of victimization, it can be a valuable resource to help victims of crime rebuild their lives. And it is a powerful incentive to hold institutions, landlords, businessmen, and employers accountable. In this series, we will look at civil justice thought for criminal acts and bring together diverse perspectives to tackle complex questions of accountability, justice, and healing. Parallel Justice is brought to you by the National Crime Victim Bar Association, which is a program of the National Center for Victims of Crime. More information about the National Center and the National Crime Victim Bar Association is available at victimsofcrime.org. Please be advised that some of the topics we discuss may be disturbing, and these are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics may also be triggering. We encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. Confidential, compassionate support is available via call, text, or chat at victimconnect.org. The views expressed in the following podcast are those of our guests, who are experts in these areas. These opinions are invaluable, however, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center for Victims of Crime. We acknowledge that some of these views may be controversial. However, our goal in these discussions is to raise awareness of victims' rights and the options available to them. Please enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Parallel Justice. I'm joined again today by our two incredibly special attorneys, NCVBA members and friends, Brad Edwards and Brittany Henderson of Edwards Pottinger. We're going to continue our conversation on their efforts against Jeffrey Epstein. Now, in the last episode, we unpacked how Brad and Brittany got involved in the case, and today we're going to do a deeper dive into really how Epstein was able to continue abusing so many young women for so many years, even after the government was aware of his actions. Brad, I wanna start with you. Can you just walk us through some of that? Yeah, well, I also think just like in the face of scrutiny, the system was still catering to him. I mean, I filed this case in 2008. The guy goes to jail, he gets out on work release and while he's on work release, He's literally having sex in his office every single day. You would think that at least because this case was filed against the government saying it was an illegal plea, that somebody would be watching a little better. What does work release look like for a billionaire financier? Well, so so he got, after three months- Because wait, let's explain yeah. the concept of work release, yeah. usually. To work. 
is to go to work actually go for for people who are about to get out and maybe don't have the financial means so how does Epstein get work release and what's it look like for him yeah well so, so the steps of it were at his guilty plea June 30th 2008 he stood up and told the court that he uh, had this very established philanthropy called the Florida Science Foundation which had not been established at all and it did nothing it lied straight to the judge's face but nobody checked it and, uh, but he opened up the Florida Science Foundation that was right next to his lawyer, Jack Goldberger's office, literally on the same floor, basically adjoining offices. And Jeffrey Epstein then checked into jail and within a couple months was granted work release so that he could go work uh, at the Florida Science Foundation, which seems already like, a, like a, an alley side deal. I mean, it's just like, something that should never happen he's not he's not doing anything but he would leave uh six days a week for 13 hours a day and his day really looked like uh a guard that he paid they worked for the state but he paid the guard would follow him to his office where he had stashed other young females that were sex trafficking victims and uh, he would strip down essentially in the office to his ankle bracelet only that he was wearing his monitor. And he would engage in whatever types of acts that he had been engaging in to get him into jail and did it with impunity. I mean, just no care whatsoever that he would get caught, detected, whatever, because the state's literally sitting at the door watching him. You know, they're guarding over now his illegal activities. And then when he was done with the day of not only that, when he wasn't doing that, he was sending emails to other girls asking for nude pictures. I mean, that's that's what his entire time in quote unquote jail in Florida consisted of. And then he would go back to his cell and, and the abuse, because he was able to get away with that abuse. Here's the part that nobody understands because we have, we represent a lot of the, the females who were in that office. What nobody understands because people say, why didn't you after he went to jail in Florida, just come forward and say what he was doing. And they said, would, would you ever do that? Imagine how much power this guy has. First of all, he was on the telephone with Bill Clinton. I listened to him do this. He was on the president, he was on the, uh, uh, the phone with uh, Donald Trump. He was on the president, he was on the phone with the consulates, with, uh, with the embassy, with anybody that you imagine. And now he's in quote unquote jail and he has a security guard from jail watching over him committing the same offenses that led him to go to jail. Who do you want me to tell? Is he making threats? He doesn't need to. He doesn't, he doesn't need, to. need to. He doesn't need to, but but he would do this. He would call over people I, I won't call out, but very powerful people from other places that don't have very friendly governments to tell stories in front of some of these females about their activities, which would include going to Africa and where there would be poachers, they would fly over in a helicopter and shoot them like hunting, hunting people was their, was a tour. And the, and, the, and the justification would be, these are people nobody cares about because they're poachers. And so that would be their, uh, that would be their, their game. Well, the, the girls that are in his, in his, uh, uh, you know, in his house would, would be scared to death and know, okay, look, I don't, I don't want to be poached. You know, <laughs> You know, it's really easy to say I would have done this, but this is a predator with hundreds of victims and not a single one of those victims came forward before he was investigated, 
before other people started talking to them. And that's for a reason. He was a scary person who made very real threats and maybe not directly to you because he was a master manipulator, but in a way that you knew if you double crossed him, something bad could actually happen to him. And I want to talk about his victims and a lot of the work that, that what you all have done, the work you all have done, how that has changed a lot of things. So we have Epstein, who's a very scary man, who's a billionaire, who is a predator. But to the rest of the world, he looks like a pretty good guy. You know, he's great. We don't recognize that. And, and it's brought the work you've done with Epstein has brought to light like, hey, maybe these aren't some pretty good guys. So I want to talk about victims specifically. Well, let me say first that I think Brad could tell you so many times where he personally met with Jeffrey Epstein and he would leave the meeting and he would call me and he'd be like, oh yeah, you know, like, that was pretty funny what he said. Like he was, he's a cool guy. He's really smart. He's really interesting. I'm like, who are you talking about? Jeffrey Epstein? He's like, oh my God. Did he make you feel special? Yeah, well, he's like, you know what? Oh my God, you're right. You know, I, I forget, I forget in those five minutes, 15 minutes, whatever, that he is the serial predator that he is and he had such a charismatic way about him that he was able even to brad to convince brad for a very short moment in time that he was a good guy and i think that's what's made brad such a good advocate for this group of women is that he himself knows what this guy was capable of and so i think you can speak more of that than me but i just think that's the most powerful thing to me about this case well i mean there, there's nobody more manipulative I, I would go into these meetings with him and i met with him many times just he and i personally and we just i don't know if we have enough time to tell you how that even comes about but you know he sued me because he hated the way that i was prosecuting him so he sued me personally making up all kinds of lies I, it took me three years to get that case dismissed because he had a team of lawyers advancing these ludicrous theories but i get that dismissed and then i sued him for malicious prosecution and at some point in time, he thinks the lawyers are standing in the way of him being able to personally manipulate me into dropping the case. So if we could just drop lawyers, we could get this done. And so he tries to befriend me. And so we, for years, we have this series of personal meetings, just the two of us, um, where if somebody from the outside looked at it, they would think these are two best friends talking and they, they talk, he makes you laugh, I make him laugh. There's, there's a point in time that the cover, it could go on for two hours. We would talk about the case for 15 minutes and for an hour and 45 minutes would be about whatever you want to talk about, politics, science, doesn't matter. He, he was a brilliant person. He was somebody who was really captivating, uh, who was real good at telling you what you wanted to hear. Which is exactly what he did to our clients. He did the yeah. same thing to Brad that he did to our clients. And I just don't think that like if something bad has happened to you and it's somebody that you think you can't take down or that everyone else is going to believe, it isn't true. You know, you can come forward and you can tell someone and someone's going to believe you because it's true. And people like Brad understand that from having a firsthand account of how brilliant these predators are. You know, I mean, now I love the fact that he sued me because it allowed me to like spend some time truly in my client's shoes in the mm -hmm. sense that like you're in a lawsuit. Yeah. Your life is is opened up. You, you were know, being attacked discovery. by Jeff Epstein. He, he told yeah. Brad he's going to follow his wife and his kids. I mean, what what's there's nothing scarier you can hear as a human being that I'm not just coming after you. I'm coming after your wife. I'm coming after your kids. I'm going to destroy the people that you care about the most in this entire world just to take you down. Like, I don't even know what you do in that kind of situation. Do you continue to try to represent these women who deserve to have someone listen to them? Or do you not because you're scared that someone's going to go after your family? I do think it backfired on him though, because like coming after me personally made me understand what the victims had gone through even more so and want to fight even harder. So he, that arrogance on his part 
yes, he was manipulative. And yes, I would leave meetings and for 10 minutes, I would think he was my friend. But then after that, I would remember, I really hate this guy. He's a terrible person. And he's a big manipulator that needs to be taken down. And, and so I think it was his downfall. Uh, but it just goes to show these, these guys, they are, uh, you know, they, they can be really, uh, really powerful manipulators and, and, feeling, and get over on the system. The feeling as a survivor of sexual assault that I should have known better. You know, I should have seen these signs. I should have not done this. I should have not done that. It just isn't true. You know, it's not your fault. It really is the power and whatever behind these predators and dispelling the notion that I shouldn't come forward because no one's going to believe me. It just isn't true. Well, and he picked his victims. He knew. How did he, and we see this a lot. How did he go about picking his victims? What did his grooming process look like at the beginning? It wasn't just money. It was something that somebody needed, whether it was a surgery, it was um, a you know passport, it was money, it was food. He identified immediately what somebody needed and then offered to give that to them because he cared. For no other reason, not in exchange for any type of sexual anything. It was, I'm going to help you in your life because I care. And I think that's where the manipulation started. Yeah, I mean, he was able to accumulate a, a lot of victims because uh, his primary target, at least for the for the very young victims, which, you know, it gets really complicated. It's more complicated than most people know because his age range really went from 13 at the young side to 23, 24 at the high side. You know, everybody likes to focus on the 13, 14 year olds, but it was, it was a wider range than that. Um, but what Brittany says is, is the main, that, that's his main MO is figure out what somebody needs or wants in life and capitalize on it because everybody's taught that trust is a good thing. You know, trust, trust your elders to look, to look up and respect them, especially somebody who's been successful and to have big dreams and, and ambitions. And so he would encourage you to have dreams and ambitions, but then whatever it was, he would say, okay, I can be your foot in the door because that's what all of us want. You know, I want my foot in the door to get into a law school or to get a job or whatever it is. And those are good things. And so he would take that and use it against them. Oh, you want to get into school? I can do this. And it turns into a quid pro quo after a while. This is what you're going to do for him. But I think that, that, that his success in being able to abuse so many in the really young age range, 13 to 16, was to start socioeconomically with what he has versus what they have, the disparity of power and money. So he wants young girls who, who fit a certain uh, mold, which was young, skinny, white girls right, who have no money. So he gets a few of them and they come to his house and he immediately wants them to bring their friends who are similar to them. That was the line. And the younger, the better. I mean, those were the taglines. Knowing that these are girls who, uh, who, are, who are all gonna come from the same ilk, right? It's like, they're young, they're ambitious, they have no money, they're public school kids, the four, the four or five schools that we know about, they're all public school kids, whether it's in New York or in Florida, and they're bringing their friends, which your friends are similar to you. So, so it, it was a way of only having to really focus on four or five young girls, having them bring their friends, and now he's, he's multiplied his, 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 his plan to, to now it's this spider web of, of little kids who all have the same problems, but the same dreams that, that he can just, uh, you know, uh, manipulate. Well, and that was easy for him though, until he went to jail the first time. So after he gets out of jail, 
how does he change that kind of mm. structure? How does he change that after he gets out of jail in 2008? Doesn't it change a little bit? You're it, not. It's no, not it well, it changes a lot because he stops the underage thing. So it, it's, it's really funny. Like you skip forward to 2019, he gets arrested. And, but he gets arrested and they charge him in an indictment in New York with crimes that he committed back in 2001 to 2005, back when he was, let, let's call it, molesting children. And most people think he just continued doing that, but that's really not what he did. But Marty Weinberg, who I respect that lawyer. I mean, he's just a brilliant lawyer. He's a lawyer's lawyer. A lawyer gets in trouble, that's the guy you call. Martha Stewart's lawyer. Marty Weinberg is great. But he sometimes he says things, just being an honest person, guy, which I'm not sure Jeffrey Epstein should ever have an honest lawyer, but he said, um, you know, judge, these are old, these are things he committed a long time ago. He's disciplined himself since he got out of jail the first the time. Discipline? He no longer engages in sexual activities with, uh, with minors. So he, he is, he is, he is disciplined himself, which is true. Well, he, it entirely changes trafficking scheme because what it takes to entice a minor into the things he was enticing him to is much different than an adult. How yeah. was he first discovered in the first, the first trafficking, the first arrest? Yeah, so in 2005, um, there was a 14-year-old who had $300 at, at her high school and she couldn't explain why she had so much money and so her parents end up going to the police when they get it out of her and saying look she got money from this billionaire who lives on on the on palm beach island you know we live across the across the water uh somebody should look into this she says she just gave him a massage and so they bring the girl in and then ask her who brought you which leads them to the next person who brought you and leads them to the next person so they just start unraveling this they and have talking 40 minor victims and the guy goes to jail for a year but not really in jail on work release it's and he's disciplined himself and he's disciplined himself yeah well, well he did discipline himself in a weird way right i mean so he goes to jail and while you know on work release he's he's having sex with 19 and 20 year olds at his office and then he develops this new theory which is which we know we know a bunch about because one, he gets out and he happens to by per, by chance invite a friend of mine, who's a, a closer friend now than he was then, but acquaintance then, who's a brilliant uh, uh, science guy, to one of his uh, like uh, mind challenging events on Jeffrey Epstein's island. So my friend goes there, and Jeffrey Epstein was constantly asking him, "What are the best techniques?" for getting girls now. And, and I can't get girls that are underage anymore because I don't want to go back to jail, but I want them to be 18, but look like they're 15 or 16. What's the best- But uh, at a time when the internet is kind of coming into focus and people are starting to meet each other on the internet and try like new ways of gathering girls. Yeah, so you want an algorithm. How do how I get girls? Yeah, what's a scientific algorithm? What are the chat girls? rooms I use? Yeah, yeah so, so he goes to jail and here he, um, he starts contacting 18, 19, 20 year olds in uh, Europe, Eastern Europe, to come over here and bring him many other Eastern Europeans, uh, many of whom don't speak any English. But he also started targeting models and dancers in New York. And he had a theory that models and dancers are typically underdeveloped. So they look like they're younger than they actually are because of their, the activities that they're engaging in. So he would send people to dance studios in New York City. He would send people to actually recruit real models that he would then bring in and say, oh, you know what? I'm, I have a best friend who works for Victoria's Secret. He can help you come to this Victoria's Secret interview. 
And then he started from one model, you have two models and three models and four models and one dancer turned into 10 dancers. And so he had this targeted audience of young women who were overage, but still very young, very vulnerable, very ambitious. They had dreams. They wanted to be a dancer. They wanted to be a model. And he had the ability to actually make them a dancer or a model. And it was, you know, just an ambitious model who he would say, wait, you just need your foot in the door. I know Katie Ford and introduce her that day to Katie Ford. I know Vera Wang, get her a job with Vera Wang that day. You know, whatever happened that day, he could really follow through. And now yeah, he did. And now they're indebted to him. And then, oh wait, you shouldn't live there. You should live in this apartment over here. And then you should use my driver. And they're so indebted to him that when they when he calls them over, it says, you have to be at my beck and call. They all are. And I think a common misconception is in 2008, 2009, 2010, the internet existed, you know, it was a thing, but it was not what it is today. You're not waking up every single day with 13 alerts from CNN and NBC and whatever on your phone telling you about everything that's happening. It was, it would take a very concerted effort to go onto Google and figure out who Jeffrey Epstein was and what he was doing. So I think a lot of people say, you know, well, didn't you know he had been arrested? Didn't you know that he was accused of being a child molester? And the very honest answer from so many of our clients is no, I didn't know that. That wasn't, you know, it might've been on the cover of a newspaper somewhere, but it wasn't I wasn't reading a newspaper. It wasn't so readily accessible as it is now. And I think it's kind of like an unfair shot that is taken at a lot of people that are, you know, back in 2008, he was arrested. They didn't know that. You know, they, they had no way to know he really was a predator. Yeah. What red flags do you look for now? Because there are so many. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, but, but, but here it was. I mean, there, these are, this was happening during the day in the school hours. So, I mean, these girls were skipping school to go to his house. So when you start getting notices that, that your son or daughter is missing school, where are you, you know? If all of a the sudden they have clothes and things that they shouldn't be able to afford, but they do, how did you get it? And those basic questions just weren't being asked for the most part. And look, if you look at Courtney's situation, there's a bunch of them. The, the parents weren't doing well enough themselves, uh, you know, dealing with life to pay attention that close of attention to their children. So, I mean, that's that's kind of what happened, but that's why he chose those people. You know? Well, and there's an added layer of complication. The girls felt like they owed some loyalty to Jeffrey Epstein because of how deep his manipulation ran. You know, it was they didn't think that he was doing anything wrong. They thought that he was helping them. They thought he was their friend. And when you're manipulating a child and thinking that you're their friend, the last thing that that child wants to do is turn on you. They're not looking at it like we do as adults. You know, they're looking at it as, this person cares about me, they're helping me. I'm not gonna hurt this person. So it's not just the parents, you know, it is also the predator in identifying that with children, you're able to manipulate them to a point that they don't want to get you in trouble. You know, the child is protecting you as much as a parent isn't paying attention. Well, and we talk about this a lot when we're discussing school cases, that, that teenagers cannot consent for that reason. And we see a lot of school children protecting their teachers because, exactly. and, and the teacher's defense is always, it was consensual. Teenagers, it can't be, and that's why it can't be. Teenagers can never consent. Their brains are not fully developed in a way that allows consent for the future of their lives. Epstein passed away in his jail cell, ostensibly by suicide. Walk us through how your clients felt when they found out, and maybe your opinions on whether it was suicide. Yeah, so, I mean, having represented 68 of his victims, I don't think that there's a universal answer for how each one of them felt. Um, I think that 
if we skip ahead to today, uh, most have probably come to grips with the fact that it, it, it was probably better. You know, good thing that he's gone, but that he wasn't- can't hurt anybody else. Yeah, yeah, you can't hurt anybody else. We don't, But at the time, it was a sad uh, feeling, especially for people like Courtney. Like Courtney is one of the main people who was with us side by side. There was four or five others too that was cooperating very secretly with the FBI and with the uh, U.S. attorneys in the Southern District of New York. Nobody else in the world knew about the investigation other than us. I was meeting with Jeffrey Epstein personally, um, talking with him, and those were very scary meetings because I always thought, look, if he catches wind of this, then I'd probably die at the Starbucks. But um, <laughs> which you know led to some pretty interesting conversations between the two of us because he was sort of paranoid at the time. Um, but when he died, you know, I remember talking, I, I, I called Courtney first, I think, and then, um, and then we kind of went down the row of, of the victims who were cooperating with that investigation, and we started getting out to our clients, trying to get to all of them before the, before the news broke, and they were all crying. I mean, it was almost like immediate, like, oh my God, this was stolen from me again, and how could this happen? Because I don't know if you remember this, but it was only a week or 10 days earlier that he was found injured in his jail cell and uh, put in um, uh, suicide watch. And so they, we had just told them that uh, you don't have anything to worry about. And, and by the way, when he was arrested, I told him like, you gotta watch this guy, he'll kill himself because he wants to control everything. He wants to control everything. I know this guy, he's gonna control everything. And if he can control everything and kill himself, he will do that just to deprive everybody of like the truth coming out. So when he's found hurt the first time, we just reported to our clients, like, you have nothing to worry about. And then he's found dead. And like, uh, you know, it almost came back on us. Like they were mad at us for a second because you just told us you have nothing to worry about. Now he's dead. So. Well, it's 15 to 20 years too, after he had abused them for so many of these women. So when he was arrested and certain people were given an opportunity to speak at his bail hearing, everybody else thought they were going to have an opportunity too. There's so mm -hmm. many survivors who are not ready at that first hearing to come forward and talk to him, but it was because they knew I'm finally going to have a chance to confront him. So that like the, the theft of the chance to confront him for what he did to them, I think was the most devastating part to so many people that we talked to. Have any of them found a way to seek some measure of solace? Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, some of them are doing really good things and have devoted their lives to, to, um, helping other crime victims and helping sexual abuse victims through charities and public speaking. And several of them have attempted writing books. One of them is getting published mm -hmm. uh, in December. Uh, we've read another one of our clients' books, which is really good. I'm surprised it hasn't been published. But, uh, but I think that those types of things, each one of them is trying to work through some sort of cathartic way of dealing with this just weird ending that was unsatisfactory to anybody i think all of them want to start a charity too so i mean brad and i talk about this all the time you know if we could just figure out a way to join all of them together like imagine how powerful that would be if you had 50 women who were abused by the same abuser or just women coming together all over to do one substantial thing like one charity and i think it's something we're still working on well look, look we, we wrote a book like really i wrote a book and the advance for the book sat in a bank account. Any money that we make sits in a bank account and is going to be used 100% only to help whatever this idea is to help sexual abuse victims. And we, we, we haven't really put it together, but as we hear from our other clients about like what they want to do, 
just waiting to figure out, you know, exactly what what's the best way to because to we want to do it right. You know, we want to do one thing. We want to do it right. We want to use the book money. We want to use their ideas and not ours to let it be a survivor centered charity to really make a difference. And it's a hard thing to do. And I think a couple of them have tried to do it on their own, like with our help. Yeah, and it hasn't and really hard. worked. Yeah. It's impossible. Yeah, your job is hard. What you yeah. do is a very commendable and difficult job. Yeah. So where's the case now? So the you know the case. I mean, Jeffrey Epstein case has had tentacles going in every different direction. But um, the Crime Victims Rights Act case that we filed in 2008 against the government um, in 2019, we got a ruling in that case. You know, uh, 11 years later, that the government had indeed violated the Crime Victims Rights Act, and we were on to the remedy phase. What is going to be the remedy? I mean, our number one on our list of possible remedies was invalidate the non-prosecution agreement, and now he can be prosecuted in Florida because that was an illegal agreement that was negotiated uh, against the rights of the crime victims, and so therefore it should be invalidated. Um, and I thought that we were going to win on that. You know, there were some some quasi um, double jeopardy arguments that he had, but I think that, that we had we had shown the judge that that those weren't really going to fly uh, because he had pled to state state charges and not federal charges, and so I, I felt like we were we were on solid ground there. And then when he died, uh, the judge before he ruled on our remedy said it's moot. It's moot because he's dead. So what can we do to him? And so we said, yeah, but the non-prosecution agreement applied not only to Jeffrey Epstein, all of his co-conspirators got immunity too. And for what? They should be able to be prosecuted. So we appealed it to the 11th Circuit. We lost at the 11th Circuit. We then got an en banc review and we lost the en banc review. We just appealed it to the US Supreme Court and you know, many times the US Supreme Court, especially in a situation like this, where somebody's dead, um, you, you, you know, what what are we really, and- The danger has passed. Yeah, and, and the and, act has been changed. You know, the, the legislation has been updated to include remedies for all of these- Because of this case. You know, so, so mm -hmm. we kind of fixed the problem in the process. The US Supreme Court could have just rejected it, but they did it. They've asked the government to respond to our brief which we are discussing with the government how much additional time that they have. But right now, the, the answer to that is the case at the U.S. Supreme Court and the primary issue is going to be, um, one, whether or not the Crime Rights Act was violated because the government cross-appealed that. Um, and then what would be the remedy if they have? And, and, and so, I, so I don't know the answer well, if you're on the U.S. Supreme Court and you happen to be listening, you should definitely take the case because it is still important and it matters. Yeah, and, and I was there today and I want to argue. Um, but then, then there's, you know, the kind of the criminal, the, the criminal aspects of it, which obviously not only was Jeffrey Epstein arrested and uh, died in his jail cell. And yes, it was suicide. And yes, we have good information that it was suicide. I, I do think that we could also say that one of the reasons he committed suicide is because he was likely going to be killed had he not decided to kill himself. So it was, he was dying one way or the other, it seemed like. And so uh, this was like his last way of controlling that, how it was going to go down. Um, but then Gillian Maxwell was arrested. Um, interestingly enough, she was arrested reading our book, which I think is hilarious. Um, and, you know, that trial. Well, true, according to the media. Yeah. 
Yeah, the, the FBI like bursts in the house, and that's the book that she has on highlighted nightstand. on her nightstand. So, so jury selection starts tomorrow, mm-hmm. and, um, and and then after that's over, I think depending on the level of cooperation that the government gets in this case from some of the other let's call them important figures to that prosecution, as well as to to uh, enabling Jeffrey Epstein over the years, we. I anticipate that we're going to see a couple other pleas or uh, or indictments one way or the other. You know, I, I don't think it's over. And then there's still civil cases going on against the estate, which I believe is going to um, is going to kind of finally reveal like the the source of the money that was funding the sex trafficking operation. Uh, so the other thing that's going to be revealed is some of the other individuals who were perpetrators, Jeffrey Epstein friends who also were, you know, committing similar crimes uh, against the same, the same females. I, I think people, people have a mis- misconception about who that was. Well, and I truly believe that the message here is that no matter how wealthy or how powerful or how whatever the bad guy is, you can bring them down. You can make a difference. Without Brad and then Paul Cassell, I don't think Jeffrey Epstein would have ever been arrested. I don't think that there would have been a criminal case. I don't think that Maxwell would be on trial right now. And those are just two civil lawyers. You know, it's a civil lawyer and a former federal judge. And that's not who you would think 10, 15 years later would have been the reason, the emphasis of all of these other really great things happening for these victims. So no matter how long it's passed, it's statute of limitations issues and whatever you think is like standing in your way as an obstacle, you still can get justice. There are still good guys out there, good people out there that can help you and you shouldn't hold back. You know, maybe it doesn't happen, but you'll never know if you don't try. And that's applicable not only to Epstein victims, which it's still applicable to Epstein victims, but everybody. This case has been going since 2005. Brittany, you've been involved for seven years. Brad, you've been involved for 13 long years. What has kept you going? And what do you want to see at the end of the day? Well, I think the reason that we are lawyers and do what we do is to make a difference. And part of making a difference in anything in life is seeing something through to the end. Um, you know, stopping before you've accomplished everything that can be accomplished and, and righted or wrong um, is not acceptable and not something that I would do. And I know you know, not something that Brittany would do. So, you know, what keeps us going is that we haven't finished, you know, it's, it's just that justice hasn't fully been achieved. And look, in this situation, full justice can't be achieved because Jeffrey Epstein's dead and he's not gonna be in prison for the rest of his life. But that doesn't mean that you stop where we are because if we can use the Crime Victims Rights Act case to ultimately at the end, prevent this from this, meaning prosecutors not treat victims with fairness at every single stage, no matter how early in the case, um, then we haven't, we haven't accomplished what could be. And I mean, that's, that's part of what we do is like making sure that the next stage is different and that crime victims are treated not only with fairness and dignity, but the rights that, that are given to them by law are actually applied at, in, all, in all circumstances and that the prosecutors go out of their way to make sure that victims come first, not as an afterthought. I mean, I think that that's been, that's been our main 
her main point, but also, you know, a lot of lawyers, they handle a case, the case is over, and that's the last they talk to the clients. Brittany and I talk to every single one of our clients all the time about everything, whether it's this case or not, because this had an impact on their life that goes on for a long time. And so, you know, what keeps us motivated primarily is we still hear from our clients. We still know that what happened to them has impacted them forever. And we owe it to them to make sure that we get the most out of this situation from it, from, from every standpoint, including ensuring that, you know, what they went through was, was, uh, was not in vain and that, um, and, and that they can be a major part of, of ensuring that the next person in line doesn't have to go through the same thing. And it's not just after the case. You know, I think that what Brad has taught me from the day that I became a lawyer is that we're more than just lawyers. You know, from the minute that we meet our clients, I don't usually even consider myself a lawyer. I consider myself just a person, a person talking to them. And I think justice takes many forms. And one of the most important forms of justice from what I have learned is making sure that a survivor feels like someone is listening to them. That isn't always necessarily the court system, the criminal court system, the civil court system, because the court system lets people down sometimes, but we don't, you know, we try very hard not to let people down. So even if they avail themselves this whole process and it doesn't work, I feel like our clients still feel a semblance of justice because they know that we heard them, we listened to them, we believe them and we're their friends. You know, we're not just their lawyers. And from the time we meet them for the rest of their lives, no matter what they're going through, however this has affected them, we may be two of the only people that they've ever shared the story with. Their friends, their family, their kids, nobody else knows. And I think that what Brad has taught me is justice comes in the form of just being there for somebody. And that to me is what keeps me going. Like I know that even if we just make a difference in one person's life, I feel like we get to make a difference in one person's life and that's a huge privilege. And it makes me really, really proud of what we do. Wow, Brittany. Thank you so much for sharing that. Those thoughts and your words are the reason that, that so many of us show up to do what we do to achieve justice for survivors. I wanna thank Brad and Brittany both, not just for joining us on this podcast, but really for their tireless, relentless efforts fighting against a monster. If you'd like to read more about them, again, we are dropping their website for Edwards Pottinger into the show notes. We're also gonna drop a link to their book, Relentless Pursuit, My Fight for the Victims of Jeffrey Epstein. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Again, we know the topics discussed can be difficult and may be emotionally triggering. Support is available at victimconnect.org through call, text, and chat. We encourage you to take time today to learn about your rights and options that are available to you. Building safer communities requires every one of us to take action. Visit victimsofcrime.org to learn more. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association, the nation's first professional association of attorneys and expert witnesses dedicated to helping victims seek justice through the civil system. To support this podcast, please visit victimsofcrime.org slash donate. Parallel Justice is hosted by Renee Williams, written by Krista Anderson and Mariana Wells, edited by John Williams and produced by Deidre Watford.